this is the th well, this is the third part of the three-part webinar. Um, the first part was talking about evolution of advocacy approaches in Africa and the role of young people in disrupting power. Um, the second one was very much about innovations um, in youth advocacy in Africa and what have been youth contributions in driving change in Africa. Um, and then this one is around Pan-Africanism. Um, so it's a role that that plays in mass movement building and what does that mean for, our, for young advocates. So I think we've got a really interesting hour and a half uh, ahead of us. Um, so we've got kind of a few objectives uh, for this webinar. So we're going to be looking at uh, providing an in-depth background information on the or origin, origin so I can't speak, on the origin of Pan-Africanism. Uh, we're going to discuss the importance of Pan-Africanism for young advocates in Africa and what does it mean to them. Uh, we're going to hear experiences on how Pan-Africanism is working for young advocates across Africa. Um, and then at the end, we really want to make sure that we've got some really clear um, actions of kind of what next after these three webinars. We're going to also have a discussion about kind of what happens next. Um, so there's a few uh, ground rules for the webinar. So um, the only people that you'll be able to hear speak is myself as a facilitator and then the three panelists. But we really want to make sure that we're hearing from the participants as well. So please type any questions or comments in the chat, uh, the Q&A chat box. Um, and I'll try and make sure that I'm keeping on top of that whilst facilitating the discussion. Um, but yeah, but as you can imagine, we've got over 100 people signed up, so we just want to make sure we keep it as focused as possible. We will have half an hour towards the end of the webinar to um, get questions from all of the participants. So please do start putting in your questions into the, into the chat box. We can make sure that we're answering your questions as well. Um, yeah, so I think without further ado, we can start introducing the panelists. Um, so, uh, I'm the facilitator. My name is Catherine Rogers. Uh, I work with Restless Development um, in Uganda as the hub director. Um, and then we will, I'll go around the um, other panellists um, so they can very briefly introduce themselves. And whilst they're introducing themselves, if they could also just share how did you get involved in kind of youth advocacy in the African context and what does Pan-Africanism mean to you? So, can I start with you? Do you want to just give a brief uh, introduction um, of yourself and then talk about yeah, how you got involved in youth advocacy and what does Pan-Africanism mean to you? So if you just take like one or two minutes on that would be great. Christina? Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, so my name is Christina Chilimba. I'm from Malawi. Um, and I have, I'm, I'm a youth advocate for the Brasa Michelle Trust. Apart from that, I'm an environmental health specialist by profession. And how I got involved into advocacy is pretty much just my own will. I was very passionate about youth development and just development of young women and girls in my community. So I started by joining Young Women Christian Association, then we would do uh, trainings on sexual reproductive health rights into the villages, would train them and uh, give them skills uh, for them to be able to uh, sustain uh, the group that we support. 
So pretty much that was my start in my career in, in, in towards advocacy. And um, how I got introduced to Pan-Africanism was pretty much through the African um, um, I think it's a network, so AYN, African Youth Network. And that really just drove my passion about African Panism. I mean, sorry, excuse me. I don't know if you can hear me properly. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, uh, pretty much that's my passion, eh? Um, and I've just grown in the Pan Africanism from there, um, doing advocacy at both national level and global level. And um, my channel through the um, advocacy on the national level and global level is pretty much the global financing facility as well as uh, the professional trust. So, that's pretty much the Great. And what does Pan-Africanism mean to you as an individual? Okay, sorry, I forgot that question. Um, well, for me, Pan-Africanism pretty much means um, uh, people of African descent coming together to pretty much uh, uh, work together and um, for a common goal, work together for um, the greater good of our continent as Africa, uh, with a focus of having a good governance and uh, and good economic development of our continent. Lovely. That's a very nice description. Um, okay, Levi, do you want to just share, uh, introduce yourself, just briefly sharing your journey uh, as a youth advocate in the African context and sharing what the Pan Africanism means to you as an individual? Uh, Levi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Once again, uh, thank you for having us on dinner and uh, my brought up in a bit of a noisy environment. Uh, my name is Levi Singh. I come from Durban in South Africa. Uh, I work as the Youth Strategy Officer to the SRHR Africa Trust on adolescent access to sexual reproductive health rights services um, across the African continent. Uh, prior to my role as Youth Strategy Officer, I served as the Secretary General of the African Youth and Adolescent Network and Population Development, AFRAN for short. And um, within that role, I found myself working on various um, African policy instruments of the African Union, such as the Agenda 2063, uh, the Demographic Dividend Roadmap of Harnessing the Demographic Dividend 2017, uh, along with the Mobutu Plan of Action which is the um, baseline policy for um, the implementation of sexual reproductive health rights and the realization of gender equality in the African context. Uh, um, uh, participating in the climate change movement. So um, I was involved in the COP page. Uh, was hosted in Durban in 2011. It was COP17 at the time. And this is one of the major processes that had brought up to the finality of uh, uh, So uh, my role in that was to basically assist um, young Africans, especially from Southern Africa, to have a voice within this climate change negotiations as we would likely be the most affected when it comes to uh, uh, 
uh, climate change and uh, natural disasters. Right, and then, and what does Pan-Africanism mean to you as an individual? Uh, I think to, uh, is the realization of my identity as an African beyond my nationality as a South African. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, as a South African, we ho- we owe a historical credence to the rest of Africa in terms of supporting our liberation struggle. And uh, we would have not necessarily have had the political that the African Union uh, at that time did not intervene towards helping instill some sort of liberation for us. Um, so for me, but it's the superiority of my identity as an African, uh, superseding that of my nationality as a South African, and giving me a person of Indian descent. Yeah. Great, thank you so much, Levi. Um, and then Barry-Anne, <clears throat> uh, do you want to just give a quick, a very short introduction, um, including like how you got involved in youth advocacy in the African context, and then what pan african means to you as well, would be great. Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. Um, and thank you to uh, the Advocacy Accelerator. It's been exciting. Um, I'm not sure you can hear me properly, so just let me know if I'm sounding things. So, my name is Varian Sika. I uh, am a feminist development researcher, writer. I um, currently work uh, with a women's rights, women's and based on um, but I'm in Kenya, I'm in Nairobi right now, um, and I have a bit of a flu, so... I'm sorry, so I, I came into working in youth advocacy, I, to be honest, I didn't know I was doing youth advocacy until uh, I was told that the definition of youth advocacy is, uh, you know, there's different definitions and just by being youth and advocating for something, uh, uh, rights related at least, makes you a youth advocate. So I think um, having gotten into uh, my campus years, undergraduate years, that is, uh, studying sociology and political science, I very quickly got into um, working in different um, areas of uh, human rights. I started working with uh, orphans and vulnerable children um, who were mostly affected by uh, HIV and um, having affected their parents or like the different people who are their caregivers. Um, I then moved on to working with uh, victims of torture at the hands of um, uh, state uh, organizations, um, so police, for example. And so, um, and then I moved on now to working with specifically women uh, and women's rights and sexual rights. Uh, and I think the thing that has tied all this for me is, is the fact of inequality uh, existing and the different forms of, of inequality that exist. And so um, this is sort of a roundabout way of how into advocacy, uh, uh, generally with advocacy, 
Um, I think uh, the question was the meaning of an African club for me. Um, yeah, what does it mean to you? Yeah, uh, above, over and above uh, the unity and solidarity, uh, it means the self-determination of African people, whether in Africa or in the diaspora. Mm. You know, so whatever it is that leads to self-determination, getting closer to self-determination for Africans, that is what an African means. Brilliant. Thank you. I really like all of those descriptions. I think it's such a broad, um, it can mean so many things to so many different people. And I think it's always a very personal reflection about Pan-Africanism and, and the individual. Um, so I'd love to talk now a bit more about the kind of history of Pan-Africanism and what it means in, in today's context. So I'd love to kind of hear from the panelists about um, what do you think has kind of changed in terms of Pan-Africanism from when it started in the kind of 1920s? Um, do you think it's similar? Do you think it's different today? Um, do you think that young advocates still identify Pan-Africanism, seeing as we're not now more of a kind of global village, I think is how kind of people describe it? And do you think that the issues that the initial Pan-Africanism movement dealt with are the same as the issues that present themselves today? So I think, you know, initially Pan-Africanism is very much doing around, you know, colonization, etc. Like, is that still relevant for today? Um, so, Levi, can I pick on you first? Sure, sure Catherine, I didn't, I didn't get a specific question there. Um, what, 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 yeah. Yeah. As it was in the 1920s, as it is today, what does it mean? for um, young people and the issues they're facing now uh, in terms of the context of Pan-Africanism. So, um, uh, thank you. Thank you for, for the question. Uh, it's a lot more clearer now. Um, okay, so it's, it's something I spoke about earlier today at, at another session in terms of, uh, you know, coming from a country like South Africa, which is um, incredibly multiracial and uh, a hot pot uh, destination for, uh, for migration from other African countries. And there was recently a study done that put South Africa to be the third most uh, xenophobic country in, in the world after Hungary and, uh, and Greece. Uh, it's reported that 56% of South Africans don't see any tangible uh, benefit from the hosting of, uh, of uh, foreign nationals from other African states. So there's this intense level of xenophobia within South Africa, and there's also um, a, a, there's almost a sense of cognitive dissonance that South Africa sees itself detached uh, from um, the rest of Africa and the shared identity of Pan-Africanism. So identifying oneself as a Pan-African in, in the South African context is quite controversial as identifying yourself as a feminist in Africa. Uh, it raises some eyebrows and uh, people tilt their heads, like, what do you mean? Um, but in, 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 in keeping it short, I think that it's, it's quite challenging, um, especially to communicate the benefits and values of uh, identifying as a pan-Africanist uh, to fellow young people in, in, in Southern Africa when we're all necessarily competing for the same access to power, the same access to resources, the same access to opportunities. And um, 
it's it's really hard to find you know common ground on exactly what pan africanism means beyond the colonial struggle mm. yeah. i like the fact that you uh, that you mentioned that people raise their eyebrows when you say that you're a feminist or a pan africanist and i'm i'm very happy to say i'm both so i think both eyebrows would be raised um so very do you want to kind of tackle the question and just sharing about the evolution of pan africanism and kind of what it means for young africans and africans today um, I think uh, there had been, there has still been um, a lot of variation in understanding feminism, and there's um, entire list of criteria um, that some people look to uh, uh, sort of check against to see if you qualify, I suppose, as a Pan Africanist. Um, and so, and others will say, just like, you know, subscribe to just the basic belief that um, African peoples um, share a common history and a common destiny, and that they're trying to get to their common destiny together. So there's different variations of how and why. Um, but I think that, the, um, first of all, two things. The, I think the last Pan African um, conference was in um, I think Uganda. Um, I think after that, the fact that there hasn't been another one yet um, sort of speaks to the fact that there's quite a bit of, um, or a lot of, uh, uh, it's, you know, there's not too much growth happening there anymore, uh, at least not in the formal spaces of the country. And it's also understandable because I think the thing that sort of um, at this at the moment the embodiment of the results of Pan-Africanism in those years was the organization of African um, uh, which is now the African Union. Um, and the fact of the African Union being an order. President who refused to um, let go of power days of ruling the nations, I suppose. And so if that is now the embodiment of the thing that came out of Pan-Africanism, the African Union, mm. it's really difficult to see it as something that has sort of stopped growing in that sense um, um, and sort of has taken different shapes, as you've mentioned, uh, the global village or, God forbid, Afropolitanism. Um, and um, the other thing that's interesting to think about is the fact that the African Union, you know, in the, you know, thinking about also the fact that Pan-Africanism was... Um, sort of founded on the, the, the interest in self-determination, the African Union is now housed in a building which is fully funded and built by the Chinese. Um, and so I, 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 you know, that kind of, uh, when you think about that kind of history and like the fact of where we are now with the African Union and it being a old boys club, um, it's really difficult to see. I think I'm sort of losing <laughs> uh, your question in there somewhere, but I'm just speaking about like the key um, 
things that stand out to me in terms of uh, the history of Pan-Africanism and its evolution. And now it's morphed into something different. And now it's actually become this idea, this uh, sort of an institutionalized support for uh, patriarchal values, which is sitting inside of the AU. Um, I think that's it I have to say for that. Um, I think, yeah, no, very interesting points. I think for me, uh, I think I see the AU and Pan-Africanism as separate things. But I think uh, the AU for me doesn't represent Pan-Africanism in many ways, shapes and forms. But, um, but yeah, Christina, do you want to, to show your reflection? Um, yeah. Yeah, you hear me now? Yes. So, Pan-Africanism. Um, I'm a very, very positive person. I like to look at things from a positive side of uh, view. Um, when it comes to Pan-Africanism, um, as much as the process has been slow, but I would, I would say, yeah, change has been there from the 1920s back then when Pan-Africanism was just brought up. It was pretty much uh, focused on identity, you know, the identity of the Africans, the identity of the African continent. The focus was more on fighting for democracy, fighting for rights. And um, over the years, I would say in court, the new Pan-Africanism has sort of changed in a way because now our focus is um, on a call for democracy, uh, governance, and um, economic development of Africa as a whole. And I'm very positive in the sense that um, as much as the uh, stats are small, but there's been an increase in intra-African trade that we've been seeing and uh, increased in exchanges, exchanges between like African universities and as well as continental-wide calls for good governance, right? Mm. And um, the growing membership of Pan-African groups on social media. Um, the change might be small. It's something that we might not be able to track right now, but I feel, in a way, it's already a positive change. Uh, all that is more talk and more countries to realize that uh, Pan-Africanism is not just a fight or a cry, but it's our key now to um, economic development of our countries. Now it's key to developing Africa. It's key to realizing that Africa is our resource, it's our gold mine, mm. uh, rather than just looking at other uh, overseas continents. So pretty much for me, that's it. Now when you come to uh, asking if young people are responding to Pan-Africanism, I'd say yes, and I think a lot of people are starting to respond to Pan-Africanism without even knowing that they're doing that. Uh, I think it's, it's happening worldwide. I see it a lot in, um, when you talk of art, when you talk of um, music and, and all those other media uh, platforms. I feel Pan-Africanism is going there. It's just now for countries to realize and take a step ahead on, on, on Pan-Africanism to actually make it uh, come into realization. Um, that is on my side. Brilliant. Well, well, thank you for that. I think there's some really varied views there. Um, I think one thing that I was reflecting on, especially when you were talking to Christina, is around the whole kind of decolonization movement that was happening, especially coming from South Africa and the Vietnamese War. That there was a big focus around decolonization in that movement. And I think that links really nicely to kind of the original challenges of Pan Africanism. Um, 
But yes, we wanted to kind of now get a bit more into kind of the what does this mean for movements. Um, so I think we can all agree that Pan-Africanism is like the biggest movement in, in African history. Um, and it would be interesting to hear from all of you to hear how has Pan-Africanism informed mass movement building in your work? Um, and like what are some of the valuable lessons that you've learned or some of the impacts that you've had um, on, on working on some of these issues? Uh, so Berianne, do you want to, to tackle that question first? Yes, sure. Um, I think uh, just like uh, feminism, it's um, uh, pan-Africanism isn't something that you are 100% uh, good at. Um, and so it's something sort of aspirational and you work towards it and you um, advocate for it and all this. And it's not, I mean, for me and the work that I've done in the past, and currently, it hasn't been the easiest thing to incorporate into, um, you know, like the day-to-day -day programming work. Um, and so, it might Pan-Africanism might be a motivation for the fact that, for example, right now um, we work with uh, different women's organizations uh, in different countries across Africa, Southern Africa, Eastern African, Western, uh, Central Africa. Um, and just the fact of doing that is, is sort of motivated by the ideals of Pan-Africanism and solidarity and in unity. And in learning from each other and in learning from um, uh, each other's struggles and sharing those struggles. And so the importance of which, you know, we cannot even uh, articulate really. Um, and so the fact of um, working in those uh, different countries across 15 countries so far being motivated by uh, um, a sort of a, a quest or like a desire for unity and solidarity is like the single most you know straightforward way that pan-africanism has influenced or informed the work that we do um, I don't think answering your question properly yeah yeah no just kind of the impact that it had on, on the work that, that you do so um I just want to remind all the participants, if they want to share any questions for the panelists, if they can do that using the Q&A uh, function that you'll find on the, on the, on the Zoom um, app. Um, cool. Christina, do you want to um, share any reflections you have around or how has Pan-Africanism, what lessons have you learned from sort of Pan-Africanism Pan in terms of it being a sort of mass movement um, and how does it impact the work that you have? So with me, I feel my, my experience in some ways is like similar with uh, Varian, um, because it's always hard to, to include uh, Pan-Africanism into your work, like how exactly do you go about it, especially if you're speaking to an audience that's not really familiar with what Pan-Africanism means in actual, in actual sense, like what it is about. So it becomes quite um, a challenge in a way. Um, and um, in, my, in my experience, I find it easier to talk about it when you're going for, say, global meetings and, 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 and continental meetings and stuff like that than it is to do, to do it at a national level. So I, like, how do you put it in there? Like, how do you bring awareness to people uh, about Pan-Africanism? How do you advocate for it? Those are some of the challenges that I've, uh, I've come across. 
mm, especially when it comes to national level advocacy. But when it comes to global meetings, I find it very, or international meetings, it's quite easier to talk about Pan-Africanism. Mm. I know it's really interesting reflection that it's easier to talk about Pan-Africanism in global spaces than in Africa. That's kind of what they're saying, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think there's something about, like, you know, together we are stronger, and I feel like that's kind of what I get from Pan-Africanism in terms of how it influences the way that I try to do sort of advocacy, um, is that kind of connection with others um, versus the kind of nationalistic way. But um, Levi, it'd be great to, to hear from you. Um, yeah, how do you think Pan-Africanism has kind of informed your, the work that you do in terms of mass movement building? Uh, thanks, Chip. So it's, it's, it's interesting because um, you, Africa is, well, in, in terms of geographical regions, um, it's, it's vast and huge, and uh, I think there's a growing recognition that across the regions and sub-regions, Pan-Africanism also means different things to some different people in, in different regions. Um, the most curious case of this that I've encountered, for instance, is um, the Middle East, North Africa region. So, for instance, I've been in negotiations with uh, Egypt, Tunisia, uh, Morocco, and uh, mainly the, the, the North African countries. And it's interesting when you talk about um, Pan-Africanism in the context of human rights, and if you drill further into uh, more softer issues around reproductive rights, for instance, Africa may have a consensus to say, yes, we need to invest in uh, access to modern contraception and family planning so that women in Africa can manage their reproductive lives and their reproductive health. But at that juncture, you'd find that Egypt, Morocco, and Tunisia will detach themselves from their African identity, and they will start lobbying and, and negotiating with the, the, the Middle Eastern bloc. And that's kind of always tends to cast dispersions on even if, on, on whether or not our high-level political leadership actually understands uh, coherently what, um, what Pan-Africanism means um, beyond just, you know, the, 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 the idea and, and the values and, you know, the, the things that uh, Varian spoke about in terms of self-determination and the right to development and all of that stuff. Um, However, some of the successes in terms of movement building, I'd say, is um, so when we were working with the African Union Commission on uh, some sort of consensus with regards to the demographic dividend roadmap in 2017, we managed to foster a sense of understanding amongst member states to basically recognize the rights of um, sexual orientation, gender identity, of minority groups, of uh, gender non-conforming people on the African continent. Because for too far long, there's been the, the generic rebuttal of, oh, um, LGBTI people or being of a different sexual orientation, gender identity isn't African. And um, when we can go back into history, and I mean, you can go even into Kinshaka from South Africa, and there were instances of, of homosexuality in the Zulu kingdom um, as far back as 800 to 900 years. And it's really about providing a historical nuance now um, to assist in the understanding and to um, assist in the embracing of how the world is changing and what implications this does have for African society. Um, but, I mean, there has been good success in terms of getting 
um, language around recognizing the rights and the equality of LGBTI people, for instance, when we talk about investing in young people and when we make these blanket statements about leaving no one behind to keep that firmly in, in, in on, and on the agenda. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I think there's, a, there's also a really great book uh, about the origins of Uganda, which also talks about men sleeping with men. And I think we need to get away from this, those assumptions about what African culture is. Um, and I think it kind of actually colonialization culture rather than African culture. Um, so we've got a couple of questions coming in from the participants. Um, it'll be great for people to share as many questions as they have, um, but we'll get going on the ones we have at the moment. Uh, and I can't remember if it was Barianne or Christina that mentioned this, but there's a, um, a question around what's the difference between a Pan-African and an Afropolitan? Was that you, was it you, Christina, that mentioned Afropolitan? No. No, was it Barianne? Yes, I'm slow to unmute the thing, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so do you want to just share what's the difference between a Pan-African and an Afropolitan? Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that I'm, a, you know, quite like the authority on Afropolitanism, but my understanding of um, Afropolitanism is this sort of um, class kind of... Um, discussion about movement and, uh, you know, movement, I mean, geographically, uh, you know, access to different uh, geographical spaces and being a citizen of the global village, if you want. Um, and I think it also has, uh, you know, infused in it some Pan-Africanist ideals such as unity and solidarity and all these things. But to me, Pan-Africanism is a group, uh, distinct political and intellectual um, ideology, and Afropolitanism is a sort of watered-down, classist um, kind of basket where privilege sits in. Um, I don't know how else to say, how to explain that, because I feel, I find, like, if... Um, I don't want to reduce it too much, uh, you know, but if, if you were to think about it in a very, very dangerous way, it's like Afropolitanism is like the, um, the, the, like the lifestyle edit of the politics of Pan-Africanism. I don't know. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts. <laughs> uh, Christina and Levi, do you want to flag anything around Afropolitan, what that means? Yeah, Christina? Uh, okay, okay. Sorry, say that again, Christina. I was saying, um, I think with me, in a way, I could say it's the same as Varian. I also get twisted in between the two mm. and what they mean to separate uh, the two. They even separate. So to me, I think even this um, question would be a learning lesson on my end as well. To actually come clear on what the two mean. Mm. Yeah. Um, Levi, do you want to reflect on anything around pan pan Afropolitan and Pan-Africanism? Yeah, um, just um, a really substantive comment. I think I disagree with, uh, with Varian. 
Um, yeah, there are elements of uh, class struggle maybe that intersect with the idea of Afropolitanism, but I do think that Afropolitanism actually offers quite the unique opportunity to consider the differences and differentiation of cultural identity with the broader um, concept of Pan-Africanism, which tends to prescribe a common identity amongst all people whilst being silent on the, the cultural nuances and difference that creates um, creates a cohesive society of, of, of difference and, and, of, and of other. Um, so I, I, I would say that, you know, and, and again, um, I'm an, uh, an African of Indian descent, so I would actually identify maybe 60-40, 60% as an Afropolitan and 40% as a Pan-African. And I think that Af Afropolitanism also gives us some sort of opportunity to reframe um, a, dif a different narrative for um, young Africans globally. I mean, a good exercise of maybe Afropolitanism as opposed to pure uh, Pan-Africanism would have been the, um, the the movie last year, The Black Panther. And uh, mm -hmm. that set out a different idea and undertone of pop culture um, for uh, Africans that didn't only resonate with Africans in Africa, but also resonated with Africans in the diaspora. And in, in terms of my experience, I don't necessarily think that Africans in the diaspora actually have much of an affinity towards Pan-Africanism as much as they do to um, Afro-politism. So, yes, general comment. Um, I'm really, okay, go on. I was very tempted to see if Ariane wanted to respond. Um, but yeah, just very quickly before we go on to the next question. So I think in the, the spirit of Afropolitanism, as discussed by the South African uh, philosopher Bembe, um, I think, uh, I can't pronounce his first name, but it's an A, and then Bembe, I think, is sort of lost in translation. And so the, the Afropolitanism that I'm speaking about is the one that is like the popular um, uh, popularly understood uh, or like the mainstream Afropolitanism and to me like my aversion to that Afropolitanism is the fact that it's oh, how do I say nicely um, it's like a crude commodification of culture and so you will see people wearing dashikis everywhere to sort of symbolize or mean them. but when you all you do is commodify and it's actually perfect that um, uh, Levi sort of mentioned this Black Panther. That's like it's you know it's commodification, you know, of culture, so that you can package it. I'm, I mean, I enjoyed Black Panther. I did, but it's you cannot deny the fact that it is tapping into something so that you can make a profit out of it. And to me, that is not a good solid foundation for intellectual or political ideology. And so it's actually vice versa. The fact that this Afropolitanism has tapped into um, Pan-Africanism and, 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 you know, other uh, uh, political and intellectual ideologies to sort of fuel or feed into that commodification of culture. And so if we want to talk and strip down properly and talk about the non-mainstream understanding of Afropolitanism, well and good, but like the, the, for the most part, when people talk about Afropolitanism, they are talking about this commodification. 
um, and sort of like the feel-good vibes of being together with people who also appreciate this commodification. We can get into I'm going to stop you there so we can carry on. Come I'm on. very happy to carry on having a conversation with you, Levi, you and Levi. I think this is really interesting, but I think it'll be good. But, but, yeah, yeah, Catherine, th thanks. I do think that there is also a differentiation that also has to be made in which Afro-Afropolitanism actually assists us in creating a holistic understanding of, of Pan-Africanism in a broader intellectual and political discourse, whereas what we're seeing in terms of um, national politics playing out in many African states as we go up to very important election cycles is that the idea of Pan-Africanism is now using um, the identity of, of, of Pan-African to also create the politics of othering. And it's almost as if now Pan-Africanism is being used by some political leaders who don't necessarily understand Pan-Africanism and are holding very purist uh, beliefs about Pan-Africanism to say that, oh, if you are white and if you are born in Africa, you are not an African, you are um, European African or, or something like that. And I think that there needs to be some sort of merging of understanding in terms of the good benefits of Afropolitanism vis-a-vis the good benefits of Pan-Africanism, but to also be really aware that there are some negative connotations and undertones that have been reflected through the modern Pan-Africanism movement in terms of fueling um, a growing sense of nationalism. Yeah, okay, cool. I think people are also starting to begin uh, asking question, more questions about Afropolitanism, but I'm going to avoid those for now. Um, so Isaac uh, shared a question, and I think I just want to flag that he initially said it in French, um, but he had to translate because I don't speak French. So he said, is the difference of language a limit of Pan-Africanism of young people, especially between English-speaking countries and French-speaking countries? Um, and I think also there's uh, the, the Portuguese um, gang. And I think, you know, it might also just be interesting to think, like, do a lot of people refer to English, French, and Portuguese as the African languages, when actually they're the languages of colonizers? So is that actually should be the language of Pan-Africanism? Pan um, so yeah, so basically what he's, he's asking is, like, does, does the difference of languages across the continent of Africa uh, limit Pan-Africanism uh, around young people? So, Christina, do you want to, to respond to that? Just give me a minute, if you can send it over. I just have to do something quick. Okay, cool. Um, Levi, do you want to, to respond to that? Levi, can you hear me? Okay, Barry Ann, are you there? I'm losing everybody. Hi, Barry Ann. I was just typing in, asking you to repeat the question about language. Sure. So, is, is the difference of language a limit of Pan-Africanism for young people? So, reflecting on the fact that English-speaking countries, French-speaking countries, and obviously Mozambique-speaking countries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think um, the things that limit us from interacting freely with each other, um, language among those things is, uh, you know, just fits well within, like, one of the limits of, of uh, an Africanism, sure. same as borders do, and the fact that we're not free to move across borders. Um, so I think it really does, um, and more than when you're talking about language, I know that you're talking about 
um, how do I say this? Uh, language in the sense of whether you're speaking English or what tongue you speak, I suppose. But mm. I think more so the fact of thinking about language as um, an accessibility kind of uh, medium, I suppose. And so that even if people are speaking English and they can understand one another, um, you know, basically, uh, there's still is some, you know, instances where the way that you speak might not be accessible, even if they understand English, to other people. And so that could also be a barrier. Um, beyond just thinking about jargon and um, how we choose to speak about certain things. So uh, just beyond the tongue that we speak, there's also that um, accessibility when we already understand each other. And so among other things, uh, geographical borders and the inability to cross them freely, it is um, a limitation to Pan-Africanism. Great, thank you. Uh, Christina, do you want to, to respond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry about that, uh, Catherine. I just had to do something quick. Um, yeah, um, do you mind repeating the question again? Yeah, sure. So is the difference of language a limit of Pan-Africanism for young people, especially the kind of English and French uh, parts of Africa? Hmm. Um... I think in a way, uh, it sort of yeah, limits um, how you communicate. Um, a good example I could give is um, being, um, for example, in a Barcelona National Trust, because we deal with uh, young people from Tanzania, Zambia, as well as um, Mozambique. And it's always an issue sometimes if you want to communicate, let's say, for example, a certain strategy that's come about on, on young people in Africa and they don't understand and the only version you have is English. Um, that also becomes a barrier. And I see the same thing with the uh, global financing facility as well. Because um, obviously the first um, uh, document that comes out is always English version which sort of delay the communication process and the conversion to another language and the fact that um, um, the African Union, Union sort of like certifies um, in English, English, um, um, I think uh, Portuguese and French, right? Um, to be the languages for the AU. Um, yeah, it sort of limits in a way because uh, there's certain people who don't know or understand any of those languages um, so when it comes to communication and togetherness, and when that comes together with a uh, time limit, that sort of language uh, barrier becomes a limiting factor. Because uh, when someone doesn't understand Portuguese, someone doesn't understand English, someone doesn't understand French, then communication comes right after the implementation. Let's say if it's a project implementation, everything has been done then now they're thinking of converting it to other languages later, then I think, yeah, I think that becomes a barrier. If they could broaden up on the languages, maybe that would be something to, to think about. So I think, yeah, languages does have a, a play when it comes to Pan-Africanism. Mm -hmm. I think there's some interesting conversations going on around um, Swahili possibly being the kind of language for Pan-Africanism um, and how realistic that is. I think we all kind of know the the story of Swahili starting off in Zanzibar and then 
slowly dying out because they're more in that the correct gets. But um, I think language is a really key part, um, especially the kind of colonial languages versus local languages, etc. Um, right, so we've got another question from Dorothy. Um, so she says, the history of Pan-Africanism has little to show of women involvement, and it, has, and it was a man-led movement. Um, this has hugely affected the current involvement of women in this conversation. How can this be overcome uh, by women, especially young women, um, whilst gaining the benefit that Pan-Africanism can bring on board? Um, so, basically, it's kind of um, what is the role of, of women in Pan-Africanism uh, and how have they kind of benefited from it or how can they benefit from it when it's kind of seen as a, as a masculine space? Um, Christina, do you want to go first on that one? Yeah, yes, I, I could go for that one. Um, when it comes to the role of women and, and Pan-Africanism, um, I feel uh, that is true. It is a challenge. Because first of all, it was started by people who were back then educated or in political positions, and most of them were men. And as much as, yes, we've been fighting for women involvement, women empowerment, you see that even the trends, there's still little women involvement when it comes to not just political, but in decision-making spaces. And... Um, that is an issue that we've been advocating for. I've been advocating for that, like women in, in, in uh, Pan-Africanism, women in uh, decision-making spaces. Because um, when you look at it, uh, Pan-Africanism, I might go a bit on the political side, not, to, not in the sense of trying to be political, but because I feel Pan-Africanism Pan is pretty much led by decision-makers and leaders in countries, and that pretty much makes uh, politicians and leaders in our countries. Already the space doesn't have a women, like women's voice. There's no uh, power of, of women voices when it comes to, I think, um, certain aspects of Pan-Africanism. Maybe if we go to advocacy, if we go to other areas like arts and, and mm -hmm. other areas like that, you say maybe there's a, a role of, of Pan-Africanism, but I feel Pan there's still a challenge when it comes to um, women involvement and I feel that as young people we still need to advocate more about it. They still mm. we still need to talk more about it. A good example I'll give you is um, just recently I went for a meeting uh, that was of member states and um, I was so surprised to find that it was only like three women in there. The whole meeting was like of oh, 30 people but it was of three women. So you can see how um, uh, to, to, to bring about um, women involvement in Pan-Africanism, they still need of a lot of advocacy that needs to go into it. Because when you come to driving power and decision-making power, the voices of, of, of men is still on the high than the voices of women. So, yeah, I feel there's still a challenge and young people, should, we need to talk more about it. We need to make noise more about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, uh, Levi has sadly, sadly uh, dropped off the call. I'm sure it's not because you were scared of this question around women's engagement in Pan-Africanism. Um, but yeah, Barry, do you want to, to respond to the question? And especially kind of like talking about how can uh, young women really kind of like make sure they're getting engaged in this, in this space of Pan-Africanism is quite interesting to Yeah. Um, so I think earlier when I was talking about... Um, 
Pan-Africanism broadly and highlighting the like some of the things that stick out to me in terms of the evolution of the movement. I sort of briefly mentioned the African Union as, um, to me, being, um, I think for now, the one sort of the body that could ideally or for a while there, I suppose, was motivated by Pan-Africanism um, because of the fact that they have the Pan-African Parliament, uh, which is a legislative, um, it's a legislative body of the African Union. And so um, I just mentioned that because I'm starting to answer the question from the bottom, which is how can this be overcome by women? And I think the number one thing Oh no, Barianne, I think you're frozen. Yeah. Uh oh. Barianne, can you? I think I think we sort of lost her, and just right at the very important point was going to. Um, I think maybe just to 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 add to 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 what she was about to say because we'd like uh we'd like to hear how um women could uh, get involved more into kind of. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the points that I would highlight is maybe um, I don't know if uh, like coming up with standards, like a standard of leadership, um, yeah. where you will like hold our leaders accountable to making sure. Let's say if you say they should at least be an equal number of men and women in, in leadership spaces or decision-making spaces, or just having an, a Pan-Africanism standard maybe that would help to bring more women on board. Because I don't think the reason is that women don't want to be involved, but pretty much most of the time their voices is, um, um, they, they're not allowed to voice out, which becomes mm. an issue. And that will also take me to what Levi was saying, um, looking at how, like, uh, when you look at the um, northern part of, of Africa, where uh, women involvement is pretty low, and they're not allowed to uh, take part in most of the decision-making spaces or voice out their, their opinions. Uh, Pan-Africanism, I don't know how, how I'd look at it, like, like bringing out more voices of, of women on board. Um, the other point was, um, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I think pretty much that's it because I mean, for me, I don't know how I'd look at it. Most of the things that I see are the challenges that women face because I have been trying to advocate in the political spaces and it's always difficult for women to speak out. But I feel women need to, they need to, there's need for more advocacy on women empowerment, you know, to, to sort of sensitize and say, even though your voice is, even, even though it's just a few people uh, in a space that you're fighting for, whether you're fighting for rights, whether you're fighting for gender equity, you still have to uh, be resilient. You still have mm. to continue with the fight. It doesn't mean you should stop um, fighting for your right. Or In this case, I'm not saying fighting in the sense of like going and making noise. And you know, but I'm talking about pretty much um, giving women that level of knowing themselves and knowing that they, they have a voice and sticking to, to the right of, of having a voice is quite important when it comes to Pan-Africanism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
because yeah. if you go under cultural, in most cultures in Africa, women are not women don't really have a voice. You're supposed to be there to just, you know, help the man and you don't have a voice in actual sense. And that has played a role even in, in Pan-Africanism as a, as a movement itself. So yeah. I think there's a lot of um, advocacy that's needed on, on, on women involvement in Pan-Africanism. Yeah. No, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, is now back on the call. Uh, Verianne, we lost you just when you were, we know you were going to say something fantastic. So yeah, please, please carry on with what you were going to say. Sorry about that. I think uh, I should just have my video off. It's uh, making my connection a bit weird. Um, sure. So excuse me for that. Um, yes, I was just going to say that one of the most important things um, besides having a history and understanding of the history of women's involvement in um, the struggle for independence but also in pan-Africanism is to take up space, which I think I've heard um, being mentioned just now, uh, briefly, uh, by Christina. I think taking up space is extremely important, um, no matter what you do in that space, to start with. I Mm. think being seen as someone who is aware of the existence of certain platforms um, and as a group, women that is aware of uh, the importance of whatever platforms they're, they're engaging in is, is, is primary. Um, and so just to say also that the understanding that, uh, you know, for the most part, like if the Pan-African discourse is without, you know, there's no class or gender analysis, then it's rather limited of, you know, if there's any relevance it has to women. And so our goal as women is to think about, um, investigate, explore, and then share the different political possibilities that we might have by, you know, uh, considering a feminist pan-African discourse, um, specifically because of the fact that gender and class has been um, uh, the agenda and class analysis has been deliberately limited from the Pan-African discourse. And so just to answer the question I think um, was asked by Dorothy, I think how the how is by taking up space. Um, the other how is by understanding the history um, of, of women's roles in, uh, Pan-Afric- in the Pan-Africanist movement, but also in the fight for independence. And then considering the possibility that there is a chance to think about and push forward a feminist Pan-African discourse instead, because this one doesn't do anything for women, not really. And I think, um, so yeah, I mean, Barabania has shared a, a comment on kind of what we're discussing at the moment. She says, she says well, I'm, I'm assuming she is she. We could say that there have been instances that the women's movement has used Pan-Africanism uh, as a force for coming together behind a cause. One of these has been the adoption of the Maputo Protocol at the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think we can very quickly kind of say that there aren't like a lot of spaces for women in, in Pan-Africanism. But I think uh, on reflection, and I think absolutely it's definitely not where we want it to be, but I think you can kind of look back through the history of uh, Thomas Sankara making sure that he was very much a Pan-African feminist from the kind of 50s, 60s. You know, the African Youth Envoy is a young woman from Tunisia who kind of challenges some of the norms of what an African Union uh, staff member looks like. 
I think one of the big uh, youth movements in Africa is the African Youth Movement, which is led by two women. Um, we have Africans Rising, which is another big movement across uh, Africa, which very much identifies as a feminist pan-Africanist organization. Um, and I think for me, you know, one of the first questions, obviously I'm not a panelist and I shouldn't be responding, but seeing as we've lost Levi, I'm going to use this opportunity to share what pan-Africanism means to me. And I think it's something, you know, as I think somebody said, it's been adapted and, and changed since the 20s, the decolonization period, etc. And for me, pan-Africanism is very much uh, identifies as an African feminist self. Um, and I think that all the ideologies and principles that come with being an African feminist are also pan-African for me. And I know that means different things for other people, which is, is always a challenge. Um, brilliant. So uh, I'm going to go to another question. This is from somebody anonymous. Um, so they're asking, does pan-Africanism look different for young people than it does for the wider population? So what are your thoughts on how pan-Africanism benefits young people. So I think that's quite an interesting question about sort of intergenerational challenges. So, you know, does Pan-Africanism look, Pan -Africanism look different for young people uh, versus the rest of the population? And what are the benefits of Pan-Africanism for young people? Um, Barry Ann, do you want to go first on that one? Barry Ann, are you there? Okay, uh, Christina, do you want to jump in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Fantastic. Oh my God, just give me a minute. Christina, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear uh -huh. me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, sorry, I, I don't know what has happened here. Please repeat the question again to me. Sure, so does Pan-Africanism look different for young people than it does for the wider population? And what do you think are the benefits for Pan-Africanism for young people? Um, in a way, I mean, obviously, you can't say it's been the same since back then, the 1920s, and um, back then when Pan-Africanism was being formulated. I feel, yes, in the sense that uh, not completely different, but young people today are sort of... Um, tired in a way of the old ways and uh, we're trying to be innovative and think differently and looking at Pan-Africanism as a, as a platform of where we can pretty much change Africa in a new direction, you know, like change direction and uh, look at Pan-Africanism. Um, oh my God, do you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, we can hear you. I can hear you well, Christina. Christina? Christina, are you there? We've also lost Barry-Anne and we've also lost Levi. So we've lost all three panelists. Um, hopefully one of them will, will come back on again. Um, I think Enda uh, Biseng has shared a reflection, which I think is quite interesting. Um, she's just saying that she agreed with Christina about the need for equality within spaces of influence for women and the necessary empowerment. Um, and she really wants to know like, how to awaken women to their own ability to affect change after such abusive and oppressive systems that are designed against her progression uh, and emerging. 
So I think that's quite a passionate call around the fact that uh, women have been dominated by sort of Pan-Africanism and processes uh, in history and what we kind of try and what can we try and do about that that challenge. Um, so we've now lost all the panellists, uh, which is a bit embarrassing. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left to go. Oh, Christina, you're back. Fantastic. I'm so sorry. Uh, you can hear me? Yes, I can hear you very well. Sorry, lights went yeah. off here, so the internet just <laughs> sort of everything. That's one big challenge of Pan-Africanism is, uh, is communication, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, when it comes to, we're talking about young people, right? And their, um, and their involvement in Pan-Africanism and if it's different. And like, and what does it mean, like different, like old people and young people? Like does Pan-Africanism mean different things to young people as it does to old people? I feel, I feel it does, and uh, um, I feel it does a lot because old people have the idea of Pan-Africanism as back then, how it was uh, back then in the days of uh, of Tomboya, of Thomas Sankara, you know, Kwame Nkrumah, those those uh, ideologies. So if you if you bring a young person now who's trying to look at um, Pan Africanism in a different light, who's looking at Pan Africanism in the sense of not just identity but also looking at um, their rights, um, economic development, uh, Pan Africanism as young people rising and holding their leaders accountable. Yeah, there's a, there's some sense of, of difference on how the other side looks at it and how young people look at it. I think there was a second question there as well. So, um, it was also just around uh, what are the benefits of Pan-Africanism for young people? I think it's a lot. Um, the benefits um, to me would be in the sense of um, not keeping us in check, but staying in root of our culture, you know, mm -hmm. getting to know um, our history and still sticking to it because... Yeah. Uh, Along the way, um, the modernized world, um, we were becoming lost and not really, you know, regarding Pan-Africanism as um, something of importance to young people. But if you see across um, the continent, young people are starting to rise, young people are starting to recognize things, young people are starting to recognize what way uh, old leaders maybe didn't do well, like dictatorship uh, leaders who used Pan-Africanism for their own gains and holding them accountable. When you look at um, uh, the current uh, occurrences that have happened in Burkina Faso, uh, if you look at Senegal, if you look at DRC, um, as well as the Pan-African Youth Union, um, having the ability to hold uh, leaders accountable, I would say if we were holding them accountable and having the force of putting them out of positions, then obviously our outlook of Pan-Africanism was different from theirs. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been forced to take such drastic actions. So I would say, yes, um, there's a certain of, um, there's a difference there how older people look at Pan-Africanism and how young people look at Pan-Africanism. And that there is a need to sort of harmonize that kind of aspect of how people look at Pan-Africanism. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so, Varianne, uh, do you want to, to respond to that? Because I think we lost you just when you were, you were getting... Uh, Catherine, are we speaking yeah. about uh, uh, youth and Pan-Africanism? Is that the 
Yeah. So, like, what's the, is there a difference between Pan Africanism for young people and uh, old people? And what is the benefit of Pan Africanism to young people? Yes, I think there's a difference because of the way the the motivating factors um, behind being a part of that movement with the different groups. Mm. Um, and from a point of um, uh, the very, uh, I suppose, the very first conferences of Pan-Africanism, on Pan-Africanism rather, and that being uh, mostly focused on... Um, independence and you know like a post post colonialism uh, agenda and uh, thinking about how to figure out economic social and political self-determination within um, the understanding of that um, very immediate history at the time and so if you know coming from there of course pan-africanism is going to be very different from youth now who are experiencing a different kind of um, sort of the self-determination being taken away from them or being uh, denied to them. Um, and so the, the forms are different. And so it will then be very different for the different groups, the young and the not young. <laughs> um, and so um, if we, when we're thinking about the different ways that Pan-Africanism has sort of been, um, I think I, I, I just got in when I was hearing Christina talking about uh, the need to sort of have a shared understanding um, of Pan-Africanism among uh, the youth, I think is, you know, important. But the fact that that doesn't uh, necessarily exist in a concrete way means that there's a, you know, a, a whole lot more fragmentation um, within uh, a pan-Africanist movement, if you will, that exists currently within, um, um, among the youth rather in Africa. Um, and so it is a very good opportunity, as we've seen, I suppose, uh, if you think about the fallists, uh, which is a fees must fall, um, all those, you know, other fallist movements, um, because that, that was a very, very powerful um, uh, moment there that they had. And I think I think it was it was firmly rooted in the spirit of Pan-Africanism and a very useful thing because then it sort of, at least for me, sort of sparked that whole, um, the the fact that it's it's possible to still have um, some radical Pan-Africanist thought on the continent. Um, and so there is an opportunity for young people to reignite um, I suppose the fires of Pan-Africanism, um, but also just thinking, keeping in mind that there needs to still be uh, a class and gender analysis, and sort of uh, reshape it to include or and in, in, you know um, have those aspects now. So we have an opportunity really to reshape or, or shape our own agenda within Pan-Africanism as African youth. Brilliant. No, oh, are you, are you still going, Marianne? No, I'm done. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a really um, good reflection. I think, yeah, there's lots of different aspects to it. Um, so we're going to try something a little bit different. So we're going to go uh, to Nafula. Um, so Nafula, you've got a question. Do you want to share your question with the panelists? Yeah, I'm just going to share my screen. 
Nafila, are you there? Can you hear us? Okay, so the test of doing that didn't work. Um, so let me read out Nafila's question. So uh, the question is, what is the role of Afrocentrism and Afrocentricity in Pan-Africanism today? Gosh, this webinar is really difficult on the, on the, on the speaking. So Afrocentrism and Afrocentricity in Pan-Africanism today. Do young people identify with Afrocentrism or has reality been watered down completely by heavily Eurocentric ideas, especially as a generation is experiencing the system, um, the systematic effects of colonialization and still living in a global village? So I think it's kind of like, what does it mean in terms of like Afrocentricity uh, versus the kind of like Eurocentric ideas that seem to be dominating kind of global conversations? Um, I guess. Um, Varianne, do you want to, to answer that first? It's a very heavy, loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would have been good to hear directly from Nafula um, yeah. uh, like her ideas about this, uh, because I'm also curious to uh, hear what people think. Um, but in the spirit of uh, sort of borrowing a little bit from the brief chat we had about um, Afropolitanism, I think. Uh, the fact that um, the Afro-cultural anything is now being um, co-opted into this huge, uh, you know, cultural, global cultural market, um, and it's being commodified and turned into uh, a pseudo-African um, movement, which is Afropolitanism. I think, um, and the fact that this is being funded by the West, um, I think, should sort of give us an idea of do uh, do young people identify with Afrocentricism? Um, I suppose they would identify with it if it's packaged in a certain way by certain people. Then they would identify with it, which then begs the question: Does that still make it Afrocentric? Afrocentric, the words refused. Difficult, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if it's Afrocentrism or Afrocentricism. Um, yeah, so that still begs the question whether the fact of a certain uh, African cultural thing is being packaged in a certain way by certain people funded by money that is not African, would that make it still Afrocentric? Um, and you know, speaking about uh, whether this is the case or has it has the reality been watered down completely by heavily Eurocentric ideas? I don't know. I mean, uh, we we grew up in a difficult time um, of the internet, um, and so the fact of um, having interconnectivity at the speed of lightning um, and having um, the different uh, media that we consume, that we're exposed to, coming primarily from um, European or like the global north, you know, would make us a certain kind of way. And I think then we are only, for the most part, like I'm, I'm you know, uh, all this is not to say this is, it's not in totality, but I think for the most part, we are mostly, um, uh, influenced by the people who have the most influence on the platforms where we are present. 
And so the people who have the most influence are the people who hold the most power and the people who have, you know, uh, by way of holding that power, have the most access to capital and money. And so then they push their agenda and then they push whatever it is that they want to push towards everybody else. And so I think there is a very, very Eurocentric um, uh, focus in everything that we consume as uh, specifically African youth. And, you know, it's, it's, it's because that's what's funded um, and that's where the money is. And so they will do what they want to do and um, then package to us back our own culture and have us excited that it is now packaged in a way that is, um, uh, I, I suppose, uh, relatable in the sense that it is coming from like the global north kind of packaging style. And so we will get excited by Black Panther um, because now we can see ourselves um, on a huge screen, which is important, but like we can see black skin on on, on like an, a large Hollywood um, production and then we're excited but we're not realizing or we are but we don't care that um, this is just uh, our life has been sort of repackaged and repurposed and then we're being made to pay for it to see it, it doesn't come for free so and then we're making money we're contributing to the money making ventures of other people who are not African. So I think, um, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's my roundabout way of saying I don't see Afrocentric anything um, uh, sort of being the focus or being something that is uh, identified as, or, or rather it's something that young people identify with very specifically, I don't think so. Cool. Thank, thank you, Marianne. I think, uh, yeah, there was a there was a big divide along a lot of people I know about Wakanda, and if it's a, if it was a tool for good or if it was a tool for bad, but um, that could be a whole other webinar. Um, Christina, do you want to share your reflections? Yeah, uh, just uh, read again the questions for me, please. Yeah, sure. Sorry. So, no worries. So, what is the role of Afrocentricity in Pan Africanism today? Um, and it's kind of like, do young people identify with Afrocentrism? Or has reality been watered down completely by heavily Eurocentric ideas? Uh, and this especially as a generation that is experiencing the systematic effects of colonialism and still living in a global village. So I guess it's talking about like kind of African identity and what does that mean in a very much global Western European dominated world, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Can you see me? Yes, absolutely. Like going on and off. No. So we're talking about Afrocentrism. Right? Yeah. This, I think, was founded in. Oh, sorry, phone is about to die, but I will make sure that I connect it to a power bank shortly. Um, so, Afrocentrism um, and young people now. I will recognize that there might have been a certain point where young people were more into um, the Western kind of culture, the Western kind of, uh, of living, and certain aspects with the whole internet. Uh, being on a thrive and pretty much young people growing in that kind of uh, generation. Mm. But uh, as time has been coming up, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say if it's general Afrocentrism or if it's a mixture of Afrocentrism and um, more of like the Western modern kind of living. But um, 
am I am allowed to offer a solution to that, right? Like absolutely. What, then, um, um, but we see, like I keep saying, the developing of um, Afrocentrism coming up again, and people, young people, talking about it. Young people talking about the roots. Um, young people sharing uh, success stories of old time. What um, the the old people used to do. Um, I feel uh, there is need of more to be done on Afrocentrism in the sense that um, we could have like maybe arts, for example, I keep saying arts, but we could have like um, intra-African -Afri cells, but in a cultural sense of, of, of culture and ideas of um, what our forefathers used to do back then, teaching each other, learning from each other, sort of like... Um, selling our own heritage to each other than um, getting it from outside. I feel that would also excel Afrocentrism. But yes, in a way, we're trying to get back to Afrocentrism. And along the way, it was kind of washed down uh, with Western modern um, type of uh, living and social media. But I feel there's more recognition now among young people about what Afrocentrism is. And yeah. there's been talk on how best we can um, keep uh, the culture and the, and the learnings of our forefathers, of our uh, of the elders, um, you know, to take on forward. Yeah. So I don't know if I've answered or if I've just sort of put it on the middle, but yeah. um, I feel I yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone has to answer that question. It's like it's a big theme, right? Like it's kind of. The view of in Africa. <laughs> exactly, exactly. One one talk we had last time uh, we had a meeting was um, how I think it was the African Youth Network when we're trying to come up with it. So when we were meeting, uh, one of the talks that we had was uh, how many of us were carrying out um, the culture from our hometowns. Like mm. who came to this meeting? portraying their culture, you know, I'm from Malawi, portraying the Malawian culture, no one did. Yeah. Everyone was like, maybe I would take from there, I would take from there, yeah. and most of us came in like the Western kind of dressing and, yeah. and stuff. So we had a talk on how best we can, you know, change that, how young people can meet in international meetings of the continent and still portray their cultures and still, you know, share stories of their cultures and, you know, having someone to look at you and say, okay, this one is from Malawi, you can tell mm. from how she's dressing, how she's talking, mm. or just carries herself. So that, those were some of the issues that we brought onto the table. But like uh, Varianne said, that uh, now that in this age, I mean, we've, we've grown up pretty much with the internet, learning from each other, you know, capturing ideas from, from each other, which sort of like looks like we're developing our own uh, heritage, our own born with cultures. So, yeah, I guess. Adapting the cultures that we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of. Um, I'm going to go to another question. It would be great if you could maybe try and answer in like one minute so we can uh, wrap up on time. Uh, but this person asked a question a while ago. So Dr. Bell is the name. And he, uh, they're asking, what is the role of inter-Africa trade, especially tourism, in promoting pan-Africanism? So it's kind of like, you know, inter-Africa trade, not like trade, obviously, you know, inter-Africa trade means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pan-Africanism. Well, so, uh, um, do you want to go sort of 30 seconds a minute and then Barry Ann and then we can wrap up? Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick in that one. 
Um, that is a very good question, uh, which is not easy to answer either. But I think um, when you look at the role that intra-African trade plays is um, appreciating African resources. I, I look at it like that, appreciating African resources, appreciating what other Africans are doing and making. So you're pretty much trading with each other because you appreciate the quality of what the other um, uh, country is doing rather than uh, pretty much just focusing on trading with China or trading with America, you know? So it's sort of, um, I look at it in the sense of developing our continent as well, economic development that we've been talking about, making the economy of Africa pretty strong that we're not always begging for maybe like the World Bank to come help us, any other external structures, but pretty yeah. much creating a strong African economy uh, that is pretty much, you know, um, appreciating of, of, it, of other African countries. That's how I look at it. Yeah, nice. Uh, and then, Marianne? Yes. Um, yes, I think uh, the, the spirit of uh, inter-African trade has been captured properly um, by just uh, Christina's brief words, uh, but also to note that it's uh, a whole other topic in itself. And I think the question of um, inter-African trade uh, sort of applies also to the question on um, the free movement, um, which like there has been a lot of discussions about having uh, Africans able to move freely. So uh, like the possibility of like an AU passport, was it AU passport, something like this. and. Um, and I think those two tie in together because the unity and solidarity which we're talking about is is not um, a realistic aspiration um, if we have very stringent uh, uh, borders and um, which also then will affect uh, free trade um, on the continent. And so uh, inter-African trade has a significant role in promoting Pan-Africanism because then it opens up um, more possibilities and opportunities for solidarity and, and unity towards self-determination. So, yes. Cool. I, think that's a, I think that's a nice question to end on as well because uh, I think it's been, really, it's been a really good webinar. I really like the fact that there are actually people that uh, disagree with each other. There are some people that have different views which I think is really important to make sure we have those discussions because otherwise boring if we all think the same, right? Um, so uh, I've set up the poll, so it'd be great for people to share any reflections they have about being part of this webinar. Um, it'll be really helpful to Advocacy Accelerator um, to hear like how we can be improving these webinars and if you've enjoyed them. Um, we think it's really also important that you know there's some clear actions that come out of these webinars. So um, it would be great if everybody that's on this. Okay, let me put this down here. If everybody could join the um, Advocacy Accelerator Facebook group, uh, follow uh, Advocacy Accelerator on Twitter, which is at Strong Advocacy. Um, there's lots of different tools and information um, on the Advocacy Accelerator. So I really suggest that everybody tries to engage in that space. Um, and please do carry on the conversations on Twitter and social media about like what does Pan-Africanism mean to young advocates, how can we support each other more, what other spaces are there for people to 
to link in. Um, I'll definitely be sharing on Twitter and Facebook some of the interesting Pan-African spaces that um, I engage in, but all of you are very welcome to, to, to join if you're interested. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of end of, of this webinar. It's also the last one of our kind of three-part webinar series on, on young people's role in advocacy in Africa. So a massive thanks to Christina and to Verianne. Um, and also to Levi, who is dealing with power issues in power as an electricity power issues in South Africa, but I'm sure he's also dealing with power issues in South Africa. Um, but yeah, a big thank you to all the panelists and a big thank you to Advocacy Accelerator for letting me facilitate this series of webinars. Um, yeah, and thanks everybody for taking the time to join me. Thank you.